just remembering rhetorics of genocide, remembrance, and sociopolitical judgment, analyzes a set of influential discourses of genocide remembrance to explain how public memory discourses inform sociopolitical judgment. Okay, I'm we're keeping that in as hot yeah, footage. New podcast topic. Welcome to. Hey, great shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast brought to you by Cracked Rackets. My name's Alex Gruskin. Joining me on today's podcast, our super producer, Dartmouth tennis player, and the only person with a one-handed backhand that I respect, Max Fliegner. Hey, great shot. I don't think you actually respect my (laughs) one-hander. Either way. But I appreciate you telling the audience that you do. Well, I mean, it's just so good to have you back in the booth. I mean, unfortunately, Max... I almost don't know what to say. <laughs> well, Max Rothman can't join us today. He's in California with his family for Thanksgiving. But Max, we miss you here and we look forward to seeing you. But joining us today on the podcast, our very first guest, he is a former blogger for the On The Rise Tennis blog, a well-known personality in the tennis Twitter community, and a graduate student, Jonathan Kelly. Hey, great shot. Hey, just give us a little background, you know, how you got into tennis, how long you've been covering the game. Tennis has always sort of been in my consciousness. Um, and then I remember it sort of went in and out of my consciousness. But in high school, I, I, uh, I tried to take up the game a little bit. And I was hanging with a friend of mine. And he was talking about professional tennis. And back then, the big stars were, were Wendell and Bielander. And, and it wasn't that exciting for me. But he was like, hey, did you know about this, this new American kid named Agassi? I was like, no, tell me more. <laughs> Agassi? So, Agassi, yeah. So then the, uh, the, the, the real uh, boom happened in my world with, uh, with Agassi and uh, Michael Chang, my, my first big like tennis love, Pete Sampras, uh, the Jennifer Capriati, Monica Sellis, uh, U.S. Open semifinal and whatever year that was, was eye-opening for me in terms of how um, this sort of like dawning of a new age of of women's tennis. Um, And then I think the dawn of the internet really is where it kind of caught hold for me. Um, In the late 90s, being able to have access to draws like electronically and live scores, it was just a different tennis experience. And that was before it was really possible to stream every single match around the world. Then I got on Twitter uh, pretty early on and started my blog in 2014 and ended my blog last fall after the uh, presidential election, and uh, now I'm here. Yes. <laughs> well, well, we'll get into your hiatus in a little bit, but I just want to start out by saying, you know, you are one of my biggest influences in the tennis community. You're on the Rise blog Colette Lewis's Zoo Tennis, Bobby Knight's College Tennis Today. For people who like the lower levels of American tennis, those were the are really our few sources of you know media coverage, whether it be player interviews or speculation about results or just where people are ending up and how they've progressed through the season. And so I, I kind of want to talk a little bit about media coverage. You mentioned you started your On the Rise blog in 2014. How did that come about? And, you know, in terms of covering tennis, what were you looking to cover in that blog? Um, it, it sort of was a natural outgrowth of uh, 
of my Twitter account. You know, I was, uh, <laughs> I was engaging with people and um, was doing like career high, career high rankings for Americans every week, sort of tracking that. And I just wanted to, you know, I had a few things I felt like the need, I needed to get out, especially sort of to almost justify my my love of American tennis. Because particularly back in 2014, uh, American men in particular were in a really rough place. <laughs> I, think we had, I think we had one American man in the top 60. That was Isner at that time. And um, it was just so easy and so prevalent to have people just utterly trash American tennis. But, um, you know, I, I love my country and I, I love... Uh, being able to, you know, everybody seems, it doesn't ever seem to be a problem for for people to root for players from their own country, but for some reason when it comes to the United States, Americans, a lot of them, feel comfortable just sort of trashing players generally, um, not, not even specifically. So um, I just wanted to sort of put forward, you know, the things that I follow, the things that I liked. I think my first couple of posts were like a mid-season review of 2014, just getting down to the, you know, what were the, the high emotional moments for me and the low emotional moments for me. Uh, yeah, that's it. Look, I agree with your motives. I think if you followed us, you know, this Great Shot podcast, we've been doing a series called the Next Gen Series, trying to highlight the young Americans. And that speaks to your point of, we don't really have or we don't really want to focus on the current Americans because they haven't had the success at the majors that, you know, as an American tennis fan, we would want out of our top players. And I think, you know, as fans, and we can get into this debate later, but we should want our players and aspire to have them be at the top of the game. You know, we should raise the expectations for them to be Grand Slam champions. With that being said, the 2017 season is in the books. Obviously, it was a very fun season, uh, both for the tour at large with the Federer and Nadal resurgence, as well as for American players in general. You know, American players this year had their most wins since 2008. If you want more stats like that, you should follow at Joe Kelly Tennis. That's where these stats are coming from. Another shameless plug. But so, yeah, exactly. But I want to do a segment covering the three biggest storylines in American tennis tennis from the 2017 season I think we have to start with Jack Sox 2017 season my first question is going to go to you Jonathan what are we going to do with Jack Sock what do we think oh my gosh I very publicly gave up on Jack Sock after he was after he lost uh, in the U.S. Open to uh, Jordan Thompson or maybe after he lost to Offner I mean some awful losses in the majors this year. Um, and yet, he also had the best year in in a decade for American men. So, wow, this guy. I mean, he, a lot of, he's a guy who a lot of American, people who really like American tennis just do not like him. Um, and a lot of people who don't really follow tennis that much love him. You know, he's he's got kind of a charisma I really enjoy watching him play tennis, um, personally, just aesthetically, more so than most other people on tour, American or non-American. But uh, yeah, he had a he had a great season. He had a wonderful season. Really? Um, really you think? So? Okay, so yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to cut you off, but I have to stop you there because that's our first sticking point. You th- you're willing. So 
let me let me just do a little little um, statistical background on Jack Sock. Ended the okay. year thirty eight and twenty one with three titles. Those are the title he won at the Masters in Paris, the Delray Beach title he won, and his early title in Auckland. Along the course of his season, he lost two first-round Grand Slam matches and a second-round match at Wimbledon to someone ranked outside the top 200. He lost nine first-round matches overall on the season. I I know he's ending the year as the top-ranked American, and again, credit to him for winning that Paris title, which we can talk about in a second, but I do not think Jack Sock had a good season. He had an excellent fall probably the best portion of a season he's had but if you had to ask me I liked his season last year a little bit better I'm an Olympic snob and you know this goes back to your hiatus but just watching Jack Sock have success for the country at that time you know pre-election was so fun to watch and I liked his season last year a little better I thought he was disappointing this year I was he needs to make a major breakthrough you know how many times do we have to say no Nishikori, no no Murray, no Djokovic, no Wawrinka, no Rayona at the U.S. Open? And yet Jack Sock loses first round again to Jordan Thompson. And it's just, it's frustrating. You mentioned this. He's so charismatic. The forehand is one of, if not the biggest, on tour. Some of the drop volleys he hits are just ridiculous. And that's a testament and why all singles players should play doubles because you'll learn how to volley again. But it is just too frustrating. I, I don't know. What to, I just I don't know if he had a good season. Sorry, I'll let you respond. <laughs> uh, you're you're out of your mind. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, okay. He, he also ignored the fact that he went back to back semifinal and quarterfinal at the uh, the uh, March Masters events. Not a small deal. Um, yeah, he had a really disappointing record in five special five matches like really bad um but that's part of the tennis season it's not the entire thing um even before his his resurgence in the fall i thought he had a good season anytime you win a title it's a good season the fact is you you know he won two titles and uh then he made a great run at the very end and uh i think proved his worth in the uh in the um, very last tournament of the year, I thought if he had if he had done what a lot of people expected him to do, which would go zero and three in round robin or one and two or something like that, then it would have been fair to say, you know, Paris was a fluke. This guy hasn't shown himself to be top fifteen, top ten player. But I thought his his win over Chilich, his uh, his uh, his win over his Varev, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I. Were pretty gutty, gutty results, and um, you know maybe yeah, it wasn't a great season in terms of hey, let's look at you know what was Vera's seasons like overall, or or, or uh, um, Dominic Team or something like that. But you know he he had a wonderful season. That's all. Yeah, I I agree. <laughs> I I really like your last point about um, like his record in the round robin because. I I did agree like I thought Paris was a bit of a fluke but and I thought that he was going to kind of get there and realize that he wasn't ready to I don't know hang with like a top 5 player but I was really really impressed with his win over Zverev I thought that was really gutsy and actually after the second after he lost the second set I thought you know this match is probably over for him he's had his fun but no I mean I gained a ton of respect for Jack Sog especially uh in the latter part of the season 
Well, I thought after Laver Cup in particular, I mean, he was excellent during Laver Cup. He took Nadal to three sets. Yeah, that's awesome. Had true. all of that doubles success. I mean, he was the best. Do- I, okay, hot take, but I thought he was the best no, doubles that's, player. That's not at a hot take Cup. at all. That's he not just, a hot take at all. He's and unbelievable. His presence hands. at the net, his willingness to come forward, it is a unique characteristic of top players. But I guess my question is to you guys you know, going into the Australian Open 2018, we don't know how healthy all of these top guys are going to be. We don't know, you know, is Dimitrov going to sustain his success? Same thing with Goffin. Those are Sox peers, uh, guys who are in a position to make a similar run. It's a testament to how fit will Jack Sock be to start 2018. I have always, you know, we did a segment about this. He's a skinny, yeah. fat player. <laughs> he he's is. a big guy. And yeah, he's very powerful with the ground Although strokes. His, but... his movement was really, really good this tournament. So this I, comes back to what I, I think always it was really impressive. His back he's a good athlete. Yeah, Actually, I think he's, he's a good athlete. athlete. The problem is I don't know, like, very few players with his particular body type have found success at the majors over the last decade or so. I mean... He's, yeah, he's not in great shape, but he's also, his, you know, his, his body isn't what I would consider to be a, a traditional tennis body. And other than, like, maybe a, a, a Sangha or an Adal, you really don't see guys with that kind of, you know, natural build go far in, in, uh, in the tennis world. So I'm not excusing him. I'm not make, trying to make excuses for him. I'm just saying, like, I think it's probably a little harder for him than for a, uh, Christian Banks or something to, to stay skinny, you know? And I think that it does work in, in, in the fifth set because um, he's not built for endurance. He's built for powerful, short bursts, you know? And I think we see that in his double success. We see that in his best of, of three success. Um, but, you know, he could be doing more, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah, I, look, of course, and it's hard for us. What are we? We're speculating over his fitness regimen. Look, you're right. The guy was one of the few players on tour fit enough to sustain his level to November. And, you know, it's a testament to the work he puts in, or maybe it's a testament to losing nine first round matches and not having that wear and tear on your body. But yeah, he's That's, exactly. That should be a plan every year. Right? Yeah, exactly. My, my, I guess my biggest question then to him would be instead of losing at those American hardcore tournaments, you know, Cincinnati, the USO, Open, you know, even Toronto or Montreal. Let's lose at the clay tournaments that we care less about, so that when we come and watch you, we have someone to cheer for. Is that unreasonable to ask? I mean, I don't think you plan to lose those. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. But hey, great shot. Now, uh, the, the other thing I'll say about Jack's year is, and, and I, I firmly believe this, even though I have no inside knowledge, is that he got really kind of over by Davis Cup this year because he really should have had a natural sort of break between Miami and then play Houston and then the European clay season. And the fact that he had to go directly from quarterfinal, like semifinal in Indian Wells, quarterfinal in um, Miami, and he also had double success in there, then to go immediately go to freaking Melbourne or wherever, play, and then come back and still have his obligations at the, at the clay courts, which he probably shouldn't have played. That was a lot, you know? That was a lot. And I think he was already played far more matches than he ever had at that point in his career. He really could have used a chill or a Davis Cup session in the United States, but he had to go all the way around the world again. Again, this is making excuses, but I really felt like that's where 
the break happened for him. Like he, he couldn't really get things going as much as possible, as much as he normally could until, until the end of the year. So I think there was a little bit of a blip in there and that was a big reason why. I agree. And I think we've talked enough about Jack Sox. So I'll, I'm, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I mean, he's a polarizing figure. There's no doubt. And I think 2018 will really reveal, you know, whether he can sustain that top 10 presence, whether he can make a jump at a major or you know, whether he'll have, you know, maybe not exactly in form, but an Isner-type career where he can be a threat always in the two out of three set tournaments, but maybe not in the two-week events. I'll ask you guys, though, we'll start with you, Fligner, and then Jonathan. Um, will 2018 be the year Jack Sock it makes a major quarterfinal? No. Jonathan? No. Wow, okay. Speaking of people who may eventually make a major quarterfinals, let's talk about our second storyline, the next gen young Americans. We'll start I thought you were talking about Max. <laughs> we'll talk no, about we've his... we've talked about me plenty. I was gonna say when his Dartmouth season starts, then we'll have a Max League there you only go. pod. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> a shameless there we go. shameless plug for Dartmouth tennis. Uh, Come out and watch. But I want to start with you, Max. You know, you've actually played some of these next-gen guys, and unfortunately you haven't been able to be on our next-gen series yet. Who had the most impressive 2017 out of the guys? You know, and all these players are 21 and under. I mean, this is going to be really cliche coming from me, but I was really impressed with Donaldson. As far as his year goes in its entirety, I mean, he wasn't super impressive at the next-gen finals. No, he was not. He was not. But, I mean, you can definitely tell that he was a little... I don't know. He looked a little starstruck, honestly. Really? Star- yeah. I, that, no, that, that's the, the word uh, I thought of when I watched The draw ceremony him. just threw him off. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. He had no count. idea what to that's do there. So but, um, but, yeah, even on the court, he just looked a little like he didn't belong there, and I think he absolutely did. Um, I think he's really been humbled. He used to be kind of – I mean, I just remember watching him in the juniors. He used to be kind of a hothead, and I think he's really toned that down a lot. So, um, And his fitness, I mean, looks – it looks like it's his – as good as anyone else is out there that he's playing against. And look, Um, he won a lot of matches this year. He won first round at, I think it was three Grand Slams where he won matches. He made, you know, a Masters quarterfinal this year at Cincinnati. He made a couple round of 16s this summer in the summer circuit. Uh, Donaldson is not a bad pick. You know, he's the highest ranked of the next-gen Americans. He's right around number 50. And I got to say, I love his game. I mean, I wouldn't have said that. A long, you know, even a year ago, because because I thought he was a little too, yeah, exactly. I thought he was a little too aggressive, but like, I mean, he's really solid, and like you, like you said, he has picked up his fitness. So I think, I mean, honestly, at this point, he he is the complete package. He just needs to improve everything. And but I think start believing that baseline, he belongs out So there. I said on our, you know, shameless plug again, but I said on our Donaldson podcast, he definitely has the highest floor, maybe not the highest ceiling, but, you know, yeah. even if he yeah. doesn't get any better, he is a solid ATP player. Mm-hmm. Jonathan, I'll ask you, who's your most impressive next-gen guy? You know, Donaldson is the only guy so far to have um, broken into the top 50 at really solid year. I think he is someone who clearly was worn down by the end of the year, so I don't think the next-gen results were truly indicative of uh, of his level. I mean, the match before that, he lost to Gar- Guillermo Garcia Lopez indoors, which is not a match he should be losing at this point. In his career, in the one before that, he lost to Martin Sovich, love and one <laughs> which is not a match anybody should be losing, love and one at this point. Um, and any, anyone in the top 200 shouldn't be losing one, love and one to this guy. He's talented, no, no question, but 11-1, come on. Yeah. So I think, I think uh, Donaldson was uh, 
and pretty much bit the dust by that point in the season. But yeah, I think he had a he had a terrific year. He was the only player who I feel like had the best year they could have. I think a lot of the other players uh, were a little, honestly, disappointing for me, but only because I have such high hopes for the entire the entire crew. I'm going to disagree with you guys. You know, playing a little bit of devil's advocate here because if you want any statistic measure, if you want to quantify this this question, the answer has to be Jared Donaldson. Just look where he's ranked. Look what he did all season, you know, his win losses, his you know, I don't think he played a single single challenger all year long. I think he was only playing ATP events. I guess the guy who really excited me the most and, you know, again, I'm distorting the question, but Tommy Paul Tommy Paul Summer, I mean, his development, you know, he's another guy who reminds me a little bit of a less developed David Goffin, a guy who has all of the skills, who has the physical talent to cover the court really well from the baseline, but is also strong enough to, you know, be aggressive and kind of take balls on the rise and attack from the baseline as well. And if we've said it before, you know, we'll say it again, 21st century tennis is going to be about the baseline. It's going to be who can slug the ball most consistently and for the longest amount of time. You know, Fligner, you were big on the Tommy Paul bandwagon early on. What did you think about his, you know, I don't know if you watched his match recently and we hyped it for Cracked Rackets, but against Taylor Fritz, you know, it was a little disappointing. He was a little injured, but he had a really good season. You know, he reminded everyone, I won a junior French Open. I'm one of these hyped next-gen guys. Let me climb back into the top 200. I think he's a bit of a streaky player, to be honest, especially with his... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, um, you know, he he had some not-so-great losses earlier in the summer, um, but then obviously he had match points on Nishikori, um, so I think his, um, I don't know, whatever you call it, his delta, so to speak, is a little too wide right now. His delta. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to be, I don't know, to be like someone that I would consider one of the more pre- impressive uh, next-gen players Fair at job. this point. I mean, he's impressive. Like, he, like you know, his highest level, as you would call it, his ceiling is high. Um, but his floor is also pretty low. <laughs> I don't think his ceiling is the only thing that's high about him. But uh, Jonathan, what do you think? Uh, I'm, a, I'm a huge Tommy Paul fan, but yeah, he's, he's the streakiest of all of these guys. Um, one of the streakiest players probably in the top 200. And he, uh, every once in a while you watch him play and you're just mesmerized by his... I compare him a little bit, not in terms of the strokes, but just in terms of sort of sort of the style to... Uh, Agassi, I think he can take the game out of his opponent's hand from um, from the baseline when he's when he's super on. But you know he'll reach that point for for a few sets or a few matches, and then somehow it'll disappear. And you know he's also got great promise for clay. Um, I'm really interested to see him play a full or even a majority of the season healthy. Um, so I put an asterisk by his season. Yeah, he had. Maybe the highest high of any of the players, but uh, yeah, overall I think he ended up around 150, which is a career high for him, which is great and where he should be. But uh, you know, to me, he's a guy who I could who I could see reaching a, a semi of a of a Grand Slam in the next in the next few years if everything goes right. Well, I mean, you've been watching these players as long as anyone, and so you you know, are there certain qualities you look for? You know, for me, for Tommy Paul, it's his footwork, it's his speed, that sort of 
characteristic will carry him through a bunch of matches throughout his career, you know, so long as he stays healthy. You look at Fritz and Opelka, you obviously think the serves. Their serves are mesmerizing, and, you know, serving is half of tennis, and so those skills will always translate. Um, again, Tiafo, Mo, the athleticism, Kozlov, the shot-making. What have you seen from these guys in particular? Um, is there any, you know, one guy who has a characteristic that just makes you think, this guy will, you know, be a top 50 pro for sure someday? Uh, well, I think Donaldson, the fact that he's already been a top 50 pro, <laughs> will be a top 50 I pro. question that because I'm pretty sure he's never been 49, and, you know, we can get into math semantics if we want, but once he's number 49, I'll say he's cracked the top 50. <laughs> All right. And by the way, I looked it up. He's been, he played a few challengers. Did he did? He did? Yeah, so yeah, then, so then I can take Tommy Paul and feel fine. <laughs> um, Donaldson never got to uh, a semi of a, of a challenger this year, which is uh, kind of weird. <laughs> yeah, that's disappointing. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I don't know. It's, it's so hard to predict, and it's hard for me to do sort of a stand back and, and universal universalize this. And ultimately, being number 50 in the world doesn't mean – the only thing it means is that there's 49 guys who have – more points over a 12-month period than you do. You know, it's not necessarily... You can look back in the history of tennis and some marginal players will have reached the top 50 at some point. So, um, I would say someone who has the ability to, to take the the game out of their opponent's hands more often than not is, is someone who I'm going to look at. And that's why, you know, someone like Taylor Fritz and um, and I think Tiafo has that ability too. Sometimes are really kind of good bets to uh, to start, you know, challenging at to get to the later stages of two fifties and and um, maybe get into the third and fourth rounds of, of majors. Um, I think that each one of the, the the young the young guys does sort of bring a different element to the game, and that's kind of kind of what's most exciting about them but yeah I don't know that you can sit, look at one guy and say oh he's a he's a complete package unfortunately yeah and uh, you know no, since we Federer at this point <laughs> oh yeah exactly well even then you know his one-handed backhand is suspect to say the least but um just kidding just <laughs> kidding just kidding um, but Max Fliegner, you're actually good at tennis, so we'll ask you, you know, you've played high levels of college tennis. When you're playing those best players, what characteristics stand out to you usually? Is it the pace on their ball, their ability to move, a combination of the two? What is it? And, uh, so, and sorry, and to continue that question, which of these next-gen guys, when you've watched, you've said, oh, I mean, obviously yeah. they're all talented, but what do you see? Yeah, so, I mean, when I'm playing some of the top guys um, – I played two a bit last year, so I've played some guys that are actually ranked pretty high in the nation. And, I mean, the thing that always impresses me the most is the pace. Um, it It is truly not something that you can fathom until you've, like, played someone who hits the ball that hard. And, you know, in, as far as these pros go, they, are, they hit the ball even harder than anyone I've played. So, <clears throat> you know, I think they all obviously hit with pace so maybe it's not as much of a factor but I mean I definitely think a guy like Donaldson who hits through the court has you know a very promising future simply because his forehand yeah is so whereas if you if you look at a guy like Smichek I mean I know they're not the same generation but you know we threw him in that category um you know he kind of he's rock solid 
but there's a, only a certain level you can get to being rock solid. You know, if you want to break into top 50, top 20, you have to be able to hit through the court. And Donaldson has shown that he can do that on both wings. Well, I think what's most, most exciting about these next-gen guys, and you know, Jonathan mentioned this earlier, is the fact that there's such variety in all of their skills. You know, you talk about hitting the ball hard. Ernesto Escobedo hits the ball harder than anyone I've ever seen, and that includes Oh, talking. my gosh. <laughs> uh, exactly. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Even the top-level pros, I mean, and so he just absolutely slugs the ball. And, you know, for Kozlov, I'm in love with Kozlov's game because, you know, he's gotten a lot faster, but, and again, such a stereotype, I'm talking out of my behind here, but he doesn't strike you as the most athletic player. He doesn't, you know, smack the cover off of the ball, but the variety he shows, his ability to slow down matches and play his style of tennis, mix in the slice, the drop shots, the funky volleys, the -the down-the-line plays, I mean... Any characteristic you want, these next-gen guys have. And so that's why I'm so excited about them. Is there reasons, though? You know, I don't want to get the hype train going too far. We, should I, I shouldn't expect, you know, all of these guys to crack the top 100 in the next year. But, Jonathan, it's not unreasonable to say in the next five years, all of these, you know, the 11 guys born 1996, 97, 98, if you want to learn more about them, go check out our series on Cracked Rackets. But John- <laughs> yeah, but Jonathan, you you don't think all these guys are going to break through immediately, but in five years, they could, right? Well, yeah, I mean, part of it is how do you measure success? So um, all the, all, like we've had nine of them already crack the top 200, which is more than any other country in the world for this age group. Um. And is is really remarkable in and of itself. Um, eight of them are currently in the top top uh, two hundred. One's just a couple out, and uh, they also have what four of them who cracked the the top hundred. Three or four of them. So, um, you know, is success breaking the top hundred? If so, then yeah, I think nine or ten of them probably will break the top hundred at some point in the next five years. Is it breaking the top fifty? Well, I think. Five or six of them will probably break into the top 50 in the next five years. I, I don't know if I told you about my bet with Greg Gilbert that I made on Twitter, which he probably doesn't remember. <laughs> no, but, please uh, let our <laughs> listeners know. I said by the end of 2020 that one of these guys will make the quarterfinal of a major. And unfortunately, we only have three years to go on that. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's not looking as good as it did three years ago. And I think when I made the, the bet or two years ago when I made the bet, but yeah, I mean, all of these guys are going to make the top 100 almost certainly. I think um, they're just, they've got that level of talent, and a third of them already have already done that. I think we're going to start seeing 250 semifinals and finals from these guys within the next couple of years. I mean, sorry to and cut you off. Escobedo did make a 250 semifinal in Memphis, right? Yeah, he did. Yeah, a final as well. Yeah. So I think Tiapo is going to start making semifinals and finals. Um, but you know, one of the problems is that all of a sudden, out of nowhere, two years ago, this wasn't the case, but when you're the tournaments where they're most likely to make a run, you've all of a sudden got three top 20 guys now also in those same tournaments. And Harrison had his best career year. Donald Young had a really good year. Steve Johnson is, um, somebody who can play at a top 20 level. So you've got a bunch of guys who are not considered next gen, um, who can stop you at any given point. And that's a good problem to have, but I think it is going to um, slow down their development, not their development, but their rapid success one way or the other, because you've only got a handful of 250s in the United States, and every every tournament you're going to have a guy like Isner, Clary, 
Sock, also at those tournaments, also, you know, having their best years of their career and able to beat you, you know, just because they have more experience and a lot of skills. I mean, Sam Clary is a freaking great tennis player. <laughs> um, we haven't mentioned him once today, but he got to the semis of a major this year and that, you know, by half he did because he's a great player and he got to the quarter major also this year. He beat Nadal in the final of a 500. I mean, some things that we would, a couple of years ago, had begged, begged for an, an American tennis player to do. He did, and we haven't even brought him up today. So that just goes to show that I think that one of the issues that American young players are going to have is that they're still 7, 8, 9 on the depth chart um, when it comes to American tennis. Yeah, no, I... That's an excellent point, and it kind of leads me to where I want to end this conversation, um, and then we'll move on, of course, to our changeover chat. But, you know, we mentioned this earlier, American men, 259 wins this year, the most since 2008. We had nine ATP titles, the second most by any country behind Spain, and we had three guys end in the top 20, the most since 2011. By the way, again, all of those stats from Jonathan Kelly himself. you got to follow him on Twitter. <laughs> I didn't um, even know those. <laughs> exactly. So we currently have Sock, Isner, Query, Harrison, Johnson, Young, Donaldson, Tiafo, and Sandgren. Nine guys in the top 100. My question to both you and Fliegner, with these next-gen guys, with the Fertangelos, the Krugers, the Smeeceks, the Kudlas, how many Americans should we expect to end in the top 100 at the end of 2018? Jonathan, you go first. Ooh, that's a good one. Um... Honestly, I think we should expect to have 12. You say 12? 12. Do you yeah. want to, do and you I'll want... tell you who they are, too. Uh-huh. I think that we'll, we'll have uh, the first ones that you mentioned. I'm not sure tennis is going to be able to have quite the same year he had this year because he's going to be playing a lot of ATPs, probably. Um, have to defend a lot of points. By, by, the end of next, by the end of next year, we'll see Fritz in the top 100. I think we'll see at least one other, either you know, an Escobedo or a, or a Paul. Um, I think Tim Smichek's going to end the year in the top 100 based on what I saw in, in Champagne, which I know is just a small bit. And I think Bjorn uh, Fikandro will finish the year in the top 100 if he stays healthy. So. Fliegner, what do you think? All right. Fliegner looks like he has a face that says, I'm struggling to come up with an answer. That's why he's behind the mic. So we'll, uh, we'll cut him out of this one. I'm going to disagree with you. I'm going to go a little higher than that. I'm going to say 15. Now, holy crap. Yeah, I look, this is an adventurous bet and I wish Brad Gilbert would call me and offer me a tennis lesson as well because I think this is a a bold bet and one he could happily take the under on. But I'll say Sock, Isner, Query, Harrison, Johnson, Young, Donaldson, Tiafo all sit, all stay. Sandgren's going to drop out because he has a lot of points to defend, but you know, I was following along in your tweets, and I was watching the live stream. Bjorn Fertangelo looks phenomenal. I think he is for sure going to break through next year. Same thing with Taylor Fritz. You know, he's ending the year really well. I think, you know, he skipped this year's clay season, so he doesn't have as many points to defend. So I think that'll be allow him to jump. I'm in love with Kozlov's game. I just think it works. I think it's such a unique style that he'll break through. I think Opelka looks, bra- uh, looks great. I think Smichek will have some success. Uh, I need two more. I'll go with Opelka, and I'll go with, you know, I interviewed him, so I'm going to throw him some love. I'll go with Noah Rubin as well. I'm a big fan of Noah Rubin. I'm on the bandwagon. Those are my 15. 
I just think these you next. You think Ruben is going to finish higher than Tommy Paul next year? <laughs> Never mind. But yes, for the sake of the bet, yes, I do. Um, <laughs> look, I, I just think these next gen guys. You know, we've talked about this. They just have the qualities you're looking for in top 100 players. They all do something at an elite level, and you know. Again, we're sleeping on Michael Moe. We haven't even mentioned him. Michael Moe is one of the most physically impressive tennis players on tour. His ability, I mean, he is the definition of as good as a pusher gets. The guy just gets to every ball. He will not miss. He will make you, you know, hit that extra passing shot. Otherwise, he's going to get to it and, you know, hurt you. I just Yeah, he won't enter the top 100 until he starts becoming more aggressive, though. I think he's the new Jill Simone. I don't know what you think about that. A little, you know, cross-cultural comparison I mean, works, too. That's it. I mean, that's a top-ten player right there. I mean, that's the other thing about, like, tennis success and athleticism and all that sort of thing. At some point, you have to acknowledge that Jill Simone was a top-ten ATP player for years. What do you do with that knowledge? What does that say about, about the sport? And nothing against Jill. And I mentioned once that it shows that athleticism isn't the be-all and end-all in, in sports. And somebody said that he had, like, the highest resting heart rate ever measured or something like that, so I don't know. What do I know? <laughs> no, I but, mean, uh, yeah. you, you actually made a real, you know, we talked before this podcast, and the comparison you made was the French generation versus this American generation. You know, there's the Sanga, Gasquet, Simone, Monfils generation versus these nine Americans now. That French generation, they never won a singles Grand Slam. Sanga won that one world, or that one Masters event, but beyond that, they really haven't had that much success Yet you can't consider that group a failure because all of those players have been inside the top 10. And so when we're talking expectations for these next-gen guys, um, I guess what where should we have our standards set? You know, Should we expect these guys in the next three years to, to five years to crack the top 100? Or you know, is it we need the long-term plan of can these guys end Roddick's single slam streak? Right. Well, I, I wish I had the answer because the other thing, the thing that was disappointing to me this year that I feel like these guys are, are doing well and are on a good path, but then you have a guy like Denis just went past all of them, you know, out of nowhere. And, and Rublev, who's very, you know, very talented ball striker, but who is marginally, maybe just marginally better than a, than a Fritz. Um, you know, all of a sudden he's in the top 30 as well. So I guess my one disappointment for, for 2017 was that none of these guys had the breakout tournament, you know, the one just sort of shining moment that, you know, uh, uh, not even talking about Zverev, but some of these other guys from around the world seem to be able to put together. So um, our expectation should be at least that we'll see a few in the top 30 you know, well, I guess he can't take seeded anymore now that they went back to, to 16 seed. <laughs> yeah, but, um, exactly. Top 30 level players in the next three years, and I think, um, yeah, I, I think that starting to look at, you know, can they start approximating, maybe not an Andy Roddick, but, you know, a James Blake or a but Jack Sock, you know. I think I think that's where we should be looking. And, yeah, maybe one or two of them can, can just get, I think that, to me, the highest ceiling of all of them is actually is, is Francis Chalfano. Interesting. Um, you know, yeah, I think... You know Max Fligner has beaten Francis Tiafa. Well, 
there you go. So, <laughs> so, so in other words, we're all going to be the best players someday. Right, exactly. <laughs> a lot of, no, lot of indirect they, wins. Despite, you know, technique, the fact that everybody criticizes technique, I think, um, the fact that he's gotten as far as he has with, you know, maybe not the most beautiful or, or um, traditional technique, you know, sometimes a guy, a player will come along, like, and their technique will be shown to be maybe not traditional, but something that works for them. And if it works for you and you've got the passion and you've got the other skill sets, then you can go pretty far, you know. Um, you can be a top-ten player with, uh, with a glaring flaw even in 2017. Um, so, like I would say about Jack, Jack Sox backhand, you know, it's kind of a glaring flaw, even though I think it's better than a lot of people think it is. It's a top-eight player. So, anyway. So my question to you will go Fliegner first, then Jonathan. Does an American make a Grand Slam semifinal next year? No. Jonathan? No. You know what? I'm sticking with it. I'm going yes. I'll be the contrarian. You're the eternal I'm happy optimist. To be right. You're just well, an optimist. I'm just trying to draw fans on. Speaking of which, one way we draw in fans is with our fake advertisements. So we're going to do one more of those, and we'll be right back with our changeover chats. So stick around. Hey guys, producer Max Fliegner here. I just wanted to take this opportunity to tell you that I will be back on the show a lot more over the next few weeks since I'm home from school. And uh, we, though we don't have any fake ads for you right now, uh, I wanted to tell you to head on over to CrackedRackets.com and check out our latest content. We've got a new article by Alex Gruskin on Ohio State University in the College Contender Series. All right, thanks. And back to my least favorite segment to edit, the changeover chat. Welcome back to... Hey, great shot. So, it's time for everyone's favorite segment of the podcast. It's time for this week's Cue the Drum Roll. The Changeover Chat. Oh, shit. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> My bad. It's, it's okay. Right. You're not rough. Then. Yeah. All right. The Changeover Chat. The Changeover Chat. If you follow Jonathan's Twitter account, you know that he is the source for fun facts in American tennis. So we actually planned a fun segment for this show. We're going to do it a little American tennis trivia contest. Um, you know, I mentioned this earlier, but Jonathan is one of my role models and, you know, one of the must-read uh, people in the tennis Twitter community. And so to get the chance to do this with him in person is going to be a lot of fun. Jonathan, you're the guest, so of course you should ask the first question. Let's do this thing. This is the Great Shot Podcast versus Jonathan Kelly. Fliegner, cue new sound effect. Let's roll. Okay. Question number one. Uh, I was just down at the Champagne Challenger and hanging up there are all of the All-Americas from the University of Illinois. I want you to name for me the three University of Illinois tennis All-Americans who went on to top 100 careers in the ATP. Oh, so you're starting me with the softball, I think. So let's go. Was Kevin Anderson an All-American? Yes. So that's one. Rajiv Ram, All-American? Correct. Two, Amir Delic, three? Oh, that was too easy. Oh, come on. College tennis is my thing. You're, you guys definitely <laughs> planned that to make me feel like an idiot. You are you. You're for sure reading. This. I'm not reading anything. Check my screen. There's nothing to be found. I don't have. These oh my answers. god! You need to get a light. I know. <laughs> Look, this is okay. I have nothing. To Although it wasn't. Imp- I'll give you. It was impressive. 
Thank you. Uh, I <laughs> I don't know. But what ladies, he's single. <laughs> okay. He needs something to do with his time. I'll start with one with you then, Jonathan. There, since you know, a lot is made about the stre- the slamless streak of American men in singles grand slams. What we don't talk about is the less than stellar results on the American men's doubles side. So, since Andy Roddick's 2003 U.S. Open singles title, only four U.S. men have won grand slams in doubles. Can you name those four men? And in the case of two of them, can you name their two titles? Uh, Bob Ryan. That's one. Uh, maybe Mike Bryan. Okay, those were the easy ones. You got two left. Okay. Here are the two tough ones. Well, relatively. Two players who have won majors? Who have won doubles titles. I actually Double know majors. this. Yes. Uh, well, Jack Sock with Hospice, obviously. 2014 Wimbledon. And uh, Ryan... Harrison with uh, <laughs> See, you're just as you're you're this is why it's gonna be a fun contest. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, question all right. question two. Okay, this is a little bit of a curveball. Um but uh we're gonna actually stay with college tennis but go to the other side and uh this is a question about women's college tennis. Ooh. Can you name the eight players? Let me just say that women's college tennis is experiencing some of the highest level of all time, and there are currently eight women's college former collegiates in the WTA top 200. Can you name them? There are eight of them? Correct. Okay. As of Thanksgiving 2017, we're in the WTA top 200. Okay. I'm not going to do as well on this one, but I'll give it a go. Um, Nicole Gibbs, number one. She's not number one, but that's one. Yeah, but that's one of them. Um, Is Danielle Collins in the top 200 yet? Yes, she is. Yeah, okay, that's two. Oh, um, UCLA player. Jennifer Brady? Yep. That's three. Oh, I forgot an easy one. Jamie Loeb. Yes. Yeah, that's an easy one. I should have known that. I didn't know she was in the top 200. Um, Vickery didn't. Townsend didn't. Oh, my God. Christiane. How did I forget her? I don't know. Oh my god. Okay. And yeah, beyond so am I at six? Uh you're at uh five. <laughs> okay, name the last three. I give up. I will give you the colleges, see if that helps. Okay. Uh Stanford. Okay. That was Carol Zhao. Carol Zhao. I thought I named no, I didn't know she cracked the top two hundred. Yeah, she got to like uh one fifty or so. Good for her. Georgia Tech? Boss her up? No, Irina Falcone. Falcone. Oh, I didn't, I knew that. It was one of the two. Yeah. And then finally, the toughest one, playing in Honolulu this week, Arizona State University. I don't know it. Jacqueline Keiko. Oh, I didn't think she went to college. God. Uh, All right. I'm embarrassed. We're going to we're gonna have to have someone, part of the great racket, whatever you call it. I know, seriously, you're gonna have to host a guest episode just on the WTA and women's tennis, and you know, you host us through and you drag me through. I will say this that Americans men's tennis had a terrific year, better in a lot of ways in terms of titles won than women's tennis. But oh my gosh, the highlights for women's tennis, Americans women's tennis this year were off the charts. No, it was it it was incredible. Um, But okay. 
I have, I think, a harder one for you. Okay. Since 1995, eight players have won both the singles and team tournaments in the same year. However, it has happened on nine, nine occasions. Can you name the eight? Can you name the eight players and can you name the nine occasions? No. Okay, but give me a guess. <laughs> I'll get some guesses. So, uh, Steve Johnson. He he has two of them. He won it in eleven and twelve. Right. Um, okay. Brain being wrecked. Um, uh, did that? Uh, did that? Did that kid from Baylor do it? Benjamin Becker. Yeah. He did indeed. That kid from Baylor who beat Agassiz and ended his career. <laughs> and just, re- just retired this year. Exactly. Um, My hints okay. to you are two hints. One of them was the answer to one of your trivia questions. The other, you got to think recent. There's a team that did it twice recently. Uh, Delich? Delich did do it for Illinois in 03. Uh, Devarman? DeVarman did not win a team title. <sighs> Those were in the dark days. Come on. Remarkable, remarkable. Um, okay, uh, I'm going to say, I think this was one of your questions before, but was it Bob Bryan? Bob Bryan is one of them. Okay, how many is that? That's five. You got four more. Hey. Two okay, ver- I have three more. No, 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 four more because I counted uh, Johnson twice. Okay. So two, um, two Virginias is my hint, and then a Georgia and a Stanford. Two Virginians? Yeah, two different Virginia players did this recently. Oh, my God. My brain. Never get old, guys. Uh, <laughs> He's got the dash in Ryan, between his name. Ryan Shane. Is one of them. Uh, Lost to Zverev in five at the U.S. Open. Uh, Tyson Kwiatkowski. There we go. And then I don't think you're going to get the other two, Alex Kim and Mateus Booker. Correct. I was not going to get those. <laughs> okay, yeah, that that's another one. So, okay, question number three. You got another one for me? Yep, I got one last one. This is um, also, you have to get the list. So, can you name the 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11? Can you name the 11 living American men who have won an Olympic tennis medal? Um, wow, I can try. Okay. All right. Let's go recent Sock Johnson. Yes. Fish? Yes. Bl- did Blake win one? Oh, no. Remember he came in fourth after... Yeah, he, lo- he lost the bronze medal match, right? Yeah. Ah, yeah. Okay, so those are three. Um, Bob and Mike, obviously. Yep, yep. Um... Oh, and you said all men. McEnroe? Nope. No McEnroe. Sampras? Oh, no, no, Agassi, Agassi, Agassi. Agassi won gold, correct? Yeah. Um, so that's six. There's got to be more doubles players. Um, couple, couple more doubles. Scott Lipsky? Doubles. Lipsky? Nope. Uh. You mentioned him already. Oh. Here's the answer to my first trivia question. Oh, Rajiv Ram. What the heck? Um, yeah, double, yeah. Uh, mixed doubles. Won it with Venus, too. Yeah. McEnroe did not. Fleming was not from the U.S. Um, Sampras, Chang, and Courier, none of them won one, right? That's right. That's shocking. 
That wasn't, wasn't as big of a deal back then. And uh, two of them were back in 1988 before they, when it was still a trial sport and before they hit the big time. Crickstein? No, that would have been a way bigger deal in the Jewish community. It's not <laughs> I'm I'm Jewish, by the way, so that's totally fine to say. Um, four more. You got any guesses for me? Yeah. Ed Nagel. <laughs> um, Malve Washington. One no. Is, one of them is big on. We mentioned him. He's big on Twitter. Our, it's not our. Brad oh, Gilbert. Oh, Brad Gilbert. Brad Gilbert tied for bronze. They gave out two bronzes back in 1980. Yeah, that doesn't count. Oh, that's, yeah, that's yeah. why. That's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, I give up. Who are the last three? All right, so also back in 1988, Tim Mayotte won the silver. Tim Mayotte, who recently liked a Cracked Rackets Twitter post, so shout out to him. As he should have, yeah. <laughs> He's one of, my, one of my favorite followers. And then um, Black and Segusa won, the, won it in 1988 as well in doubles. Did he? Black and Segusa. Uh, so that was a tough one. You have to be, I was aware of them, but they were, again, before you were born. So that's my last one. Yeah, no, 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 that was good. Uh, you got any trivia questions for us, Fligner? Uh, I've got some tennis myths. Ooh, all right, with a transition like that, you ready to get into our <laughs> tennis myths segment? All right, let's do it. Start it out. Okay, if Maria Sharapova never injured her shoulder, <laughs> would her head-to-head with Serena be less lopsided? Well, Jonathan, I know you feel particularly um, enthusiastic about that one, so I'll, I'll go first, though. Um, my answer is, yes, it wouldn't be as bad. There's a Wimbledon matchup between Sharapova and Venus on, I think it was Wimbledon 06, maybe, between them on YouTube. And it's some of the most fantastic. Yeah, it's actually, it's actually really cool. They both move incredibly well. Yeah. At that point, They're Sharapova's serve was so much better. Yeah, I mean, it's a shame what happened to her shoulder because, you know, the serve problems were always an issue, whether it's the double yeah. faults, just yeah. the lack of pace. And, yeah, I mean, it's easy for me to say if someone doesn't get injured, they would be a better player. So, you know, she should have started injecting whatever it was she was injecting <laughs> yeah. maybe a little sooner, ampled up, you know, speed up that recovery. But, yes, I'm okay with it. Jonathan, what do you think? Uh, she would have been more lopsided. <laughs> 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 because I think she would have reached more uh, more major semifinals and finals and gotten her butt beat again. I don't know. That's I think critical thinking. Serena, Serena – cares about a few things in the world, but nothing as much as she cares about beating Maria Sharapova. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know. And for somebody with, with her level, I, you know, I think it's a little bit of a shame that Serena's never had really a, a true rival along the lines of a, of a Navratilova and, and uh, Everett or a Graf and, and, and Selish. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't really care that much about this particular topic even though I've been <laughs> you need to talk more about women's tennis but uh, yeah I don't, I don't know I don't think that there's something psychological there it's like a Glendo what is it the Glendo Gerolitis matchup something is not there for, for Maria no matter what yeah well one thing I do want to mention and a, a tennis myth of mine because I saw you on Twitter talk about you were trying to figure out who the best U.S. men's tennis players were in any given era and you know shameless uh, shameless plug here but I just finished a series called The Belt on Cracked Rackets where I try and do just that and name the best tennis player of any era um, so I'm going to go with my well, you know something I mentioned in the article and I want to hear your take uh, since Andy Roddick the best player in American men's tennis was Jack Sock. He's had the best career of anyone since Roddick. Agree or disagree? And both of you should answer. Do you mean um, 
since Roddick was a, a top player or since he retired or uh, other than Roddick's? Other, sorry, other in, sorry, you're right. In the 21st century, the, the top three players are Andy Roddick, probably Agassi and Sampras, even though they only played for six years, <laughs> but Andy Roddick, Jack Sock, then James Blake and Marty Fish. Oof, yeah, I gave this one a lot of thought. And um, I'm going to say the Blake is still a little tiny bit higher than Jack Sock. Um, he won twice the number of titles. He won one more match at the year-end championships. He didn't win a, uh, he didn't win a Masters 1000, but he got to a final, and he, he won a couple of 500s, which Jack hasn't done. So... Uh, and he got to number four, which is higher than Jack. So I'm going to say Blake's still a little bit higher. He also got to a quarter of a slam, which which Jack hasn't done. So Blake's still a little bit higher. And then third, I think it's fair. I think it's fair to put Jack Sock above Isner. Although, I mean, you have to say that Isner's consistency, given a, that he was a, a college player in. Um, doesn't have the most well-rounded game. The fact that he's finished in the top 20 for the last six or seven years or whatever is is pretty impressive. Um, we don't know that at all for for, for Jack, but I, I think I'm going to put Jack ahead of Isner. Um, Sam Query, who, again, has done some things that Jack hasn't done and won more titles. But, uh, but yeah, Jack just uh, put it into a new gear last month and so yeah i'm gonna put him in number three yeah i would also definitely put jack sock ahead of isner i personally am not an isner fan just because i mean i think that his game is really unidimensional obviously his serve carries him through matches and watching him move is actually painful for me so um (laughs) yeah i would definitely i think i think that's definitely a good list i also think it was astute to put uh, James Blake ahead of Sock because I also think his career his career highs at least well where I'm going to disagree with you guys is and again this is another at Joe Kelly tennis Twitter stat but Jack Sock first player probably to win a mixed doubles grand slam doubles grand slam world to or a master's event in singles and an olympic gold medal so just that sort of success to have it you know at the biggest stages particularly at the olympics and you know this could be a whole nother argument but we should probably be including the bryans in this list as well if we're talking about best american men's players just the bryans have had so much success in doubles and as a doubles player i value their 16 slams you know i think it's so impressive But Sock has had that success, and he's managed to, you know, probably the best singles and doubles American since McEnroe. And, like, that's a hot take, but, you know, to have that success on both tours is something we as tennis fans just in general should value, and, you know, we should appreciate the success he's having. And, you know, if we combine Jamie and Andy Murray into one player, you know, that's the (laughs) ideal player, but, you know, Sock's probably the closest thing we get to that in terms of singles and doubles success. So I'd probably say he's the, you know— I'm a Game of Thrones fan, so ever since, you know, Federer arrived, it's really winter is coming. Uh, but, you know, if, if we're excluding that, it, it's, you know, it's been hard. I'll probably take Sock. Um, but, so, Jonathan, any myths? Oh, sorry, sorry, go ahead. No, just, uh, you know, if you're including doubles, that, you know, it does change things a little bit. Um, I'll also say this, that two things, that Sock has gotten a little bit fortunate that his best year was the same year that, every single 
ATP player, with the exception of uh, a two, was came down with like rickets or whatever. I mean, he, he did get kind of left out. Um, and then the other thing I'll say, it's kind of amazing that the answer to who is the best current player came down to one thing, and that is in the last tournament of the year, who could beat Philip Prajinovich? <laughs> Excellent pronunciation. <laughs> Thank you. No, I mean, look, I agree. And, you know, you mentioned this again. I'm going to cite another one of your tweets. You're going to miss your thread with 107 straight European um, World Tour Finals, Masters, events, and Grand Slams. And, uh, you know, it's hard because, you know, grievance identity is the new thing in America. And as American tennis fans, we've had a lot of reason to have grievances with our players' performances. And, you know, it doesn't seem like that's going to be the case moving forward. It really, I, I know, you know, we're ahead of the hype train and being enthusiastic about the sport in general, we're naturally going to enjoy these young Americans. But there's reason to be excited, you know. Jack Sock has kicked it off, and maybe this was even a false start on him. Um, and, you know, he's a little bit ahead of the curve. But I think in these next three years, we're going to see a lot of great results. I think you're right. And I also want to give a hat tip to uh, Sam Quirk for making the semifinals of Wimbledon. That's, that was a long stretch in which not, nothing like that had happened since Roddick's uh, Wimbledon. So huge hats off to, uh, to Sam Quirk for for helping uh, get the train moving, and also for winning that 500, which, again, an American hadn't won a 500 out of, outside of U.S. soil for who knows how long. Yeah, no, it, I mean, heck of a year by the American players. Uh, but, you know, we're at, like, the hour 20 mark, so I think we should probably <laughs> leave it there. It is Thanksgiving Day, and we really want to, you know, I want to say thank you, Jonathan, for doing this. And, you know, it's been so fun talking to you about American tennis. And, again, you've been one of my biggest influences on becoming a tennis, you know, fan and trying to share my tennis voice with other people in the tennis Twitter community. That's really the whole point of this podcast is to engage everyone in the sport and show, you know, how much fun it is and how much, as fans, we should relish the sport and, you know, be supportive supporting our players so thank you for taking the time to do this uh, and know that you are always welcome on the show all right i'll be there on the next one then <laughs> uh, thank you to both of you i uh, had a lot of a lot of fun today and uh, happy thanksgiving to both of you as well happy thanksgiving jonathan yeah and you know one last time uh, i'll sign off real quick for max fliegner thank you again and welcome back to the booth great to be back for jonathan kelly i'm alex gruskin and we say to you hey Great shot. And we'll see you next week. Thanks, everyone. A Great Shot Production.